Welcome to the HPBA podcast. We're excited to share our next episode with you where Tim and I were able to spend some time with Dr. Jennifer Sang. Dr. Sang is the chair of the Department of Surgery and the James Utley Professor at Boston University School of Medicine and the Surgeon-in-Chief of Boston Medical Center. Dr. Sang trained in surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital, followed by a fellowship in surgical oncology at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. She also has a master's in public health from Harvard Medical School. Dr. Zhang is an internationally recognized HPV surgeon and surgical oncologist with focus on pancreatic cancer, cancer care delivery, surgical education, and HPV surgery. We really enjoyed our time with Dr. Zhang, and we hope you do as well. Welcome to the next episode of the HPBA podcast, and we're very happy to be spending some time today with Dr. Jennifer Zhang um, from uh, Boston, someone who needs very little introduction. Um, and if you all were at the AHPBA this year or watched our recordings, Dr. Zhang um, uh, moderated an excellent debate on the evidence-based management of locally advanced pancreas cancer. So I suggest you check that out. We'll talk a little bit about that today, but um, just wanted to welcome Dr. Zhang. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Oh, it was a pleasure. Excellent. So we, we typically like to start um, our, our episodes with learning a little bit about you and your experience to date in terms of where you trained, how you got to um, your field of HPV and, and now on to leading a department at, in Boston. Great, thank you. I uh, grew up in the Bay Area, but I, I came here to Boston in 20, uh, in basically at the age of 25. And I spent more than 25 years in Boston with the exception of two, two years in Houston. So I, basically started love doing pancreas surgery from, from the very beginning. I even loved taking care of uh, patients that were having necrotizing pancreatitis operations as an intern. One of my first stops was to go around and advance some stiff, stuffed penrose exactly one centimeter each day based on whatever Dr. Warshaw had indicated was the appropriate length that that particular stuffed penrose was going to be be pulled. I once pulled the wrong drain on a Whipple patient early in my internship. So that was actually the, the, the post-op day one from a pancreatectomy that, that did not go over so well. So it was possible that my pancreas career was going to be over before it even started. But luckily, I got some good advice to apologize. Dr. Warshaw was very magnanimous and did not kick me out of the program. So, I, so despite that somewhat inauspicious start, I was very deeply interested in HPV surgery from the very beginning. I just, as my mother will tell you, I'm just a stubborn person and I like stubborn problems. And she once in despair, when I told her I was going into general surgery, she once in despair said, why do you always pick the hardest thing to do? Why can't you do something easier? Why do you have to pick these, these hard things? And I, I think that that's what attracted me in many ways to HPV surgery is that I, I like hard cases. I like Ideally, to be with one patient all day long doing something very complicated and very hard. And because it's a real commitment to that patient, it's a commitment to that patient during the operation. But as, especially as we talked about neoadjuvant, especially now, it's a really commitment to the whole treatment arc of that particular patient. And, and then hopefully their survivorships. I, I'm now old enough now that I have patients that are, that are out 18 years from resected pancreas cancer. That is an incredible feeling, an incredible feeling once your patients get to double digits. I have a lady who is a Roman Catholic nun, is still a Roman Catholic nun, but I operate on early days at UMass. And she sends me a Christmas card every year. I wait for it every year. And I've gotten one every year from her. 
her, yeah. her the founder of her order has been proposed for sainthood and she's one of the three miracles that they are that they are um, you know using for her candidacy to her, her founder of her order's candidacy for, for sainthood I actually met with somebody in Rome of all places about it that they asked me to so in any mm -hmm. case it's, 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 it is a miracle honestly I think what we do is amazing our patients let us in at this incredible time in their life when they, they, they see everything flashing before them. And at that point, all those things that you worry about in your day-to-day, -day, whether whether or not you um, are getting promoted at work or whether or not your kid is gonna win the lacrosse tournament or all those things, that all kind of falls away. And we get to be there with the patient and their family at a time where the things that are truly important stay. So it's family, their legacy, what they've done with their life. And we get to be there and hopefully help them on, on their journey. So something that always attracted me looked at other things. I, I love pediatric surgery. I love vascular surgery, but I hate wearing lead. So that was actually an easy decision. And, uh, and then was lucky enough to do three years of research in pancreatic cancer vaccines with a basic scientist. I basically made my project. He was actually more interested in global uh, gene therapy, but I got to be, it's great to be have no bosses or multiple bosses and your own funding because then you can actually end up being the semi-PI of your own work. So I did some work on pancreatic tumor vaccines in, in um, my lab time, I actually published, I think exactly two papers in three years in the lab, although I published more later. So I, I think I'm a testament to the fact that you don't actually have to have a zillion papers out of your lab time. You don't actually have to have these things that you think you need to have, but you just need to be able to find some passion and work really hard at something. And even if it's banging your head fruitlessly against the wall for a while, eventually you, you learn something from the experience, even if you don't have the longest CV or the highest impact papers uh, from that. And then during surgical oncology fellowship, it was a global surgical oncology fellowship, meaning that you do breast, you do endocrine, you do pancreas. And when I thought I was gonna be a basic scientist, I found it very hard to think how I could possibly run my own basic science lab, get funded and do pancreas surgery in, you know, in the 21st century. Because I, I, worked, I worked, when I was in the lab as a resident, I, I worked a bit with Judah Folkman and you know, the man was incredible. And he, I could never do a hundredth of what he did, and, and and not even and just just do it here, which is was research by the time I knew him. So I I realized that that I would have to give up pancreas surgery to the way I would like to do it. I know other people like Bill Hawkins do do basic science and do pancreas surgery, but I I couldn't have the kind of practice that I wanted, and feel like I could take care of my patients and run a funded basic science lab. And so luckily I found outcomes research. For, when one was fairly early in the, in the HPP or surgical trajectory. Got my first job at UMass in Worcester, which was an incredible blessing to me. Little known fact is, is that Tim Pollock and I were actually fellows at the exact same time at MD Anderson Cancer Center. So we were fellows together writing abstracts for this nascent organization called the AHPPA. I, I remember um, Vote mentioned it. So we, we just founded this, Jennifer, we founded this new organization. <laughs> we just sent it an abstract. I, I, I remember that. And, I and so that early days for, for Tim and me. And then I went to UMass with basically no package, but, but great bosses and wrote a bunch of grants my first year, really didn't have a package and then was lucky enough to get a few of them. And then my outcomes research career went from there. And since then, I've, been, I've had three jobs. So I, I was at UMass for seven years, which is absolutely incredible. I was incredibly happy there. Founded a pancreas program, founded SOAR, our research group, and then was recruited to be chief of surgical oncology at Beth Israel Deaconess, where I got to work with other founders of the APBA. So 
um, I was replacing, although nobody could replace, I was, I guess, succeeding Mark, um, Mark Calories partner, Chuck Bulmer, who you all know, and um, got to work with Mark, HBPA uh, past president, and uh, then we recruited Jim Moser, and Tara Kent was already there, and so just a great pancreas group of people, and I got to work with Doug Hanto of liver, and Khalid Kwaja, who's a wonderful, wonderful transplant liver surgeon who sadly passed away, and some, some great, um, great liver surgeons there as well. And so it was, it was tons of fun working with both pancreas and liver people. And it was, it was just wonderful. We did a lot, a lot of operations together, some of our early robotic stuff, especially with livers, I would work um, with a with, with, with number of different people. And it was, it was tons of fun. And then, and then I was recruited here as chair in 2017. And, and Little known fact is that, that I, I got this great job at UMass, but before that, in 2004, I wanted a job here. So I interviewed in this very office, which I know you can't see on the podcast, but they they told me they were offering me a job. 2004, 2005, the, the chair then and the head of surgical oncology told me I was their top choice. They told Doug Evans, who was a BU alum who came out to give grand rounds the next week, that they were working on an offer letter for me. And then they just ghosted me. I never heard from them again. Wow. For all I know, there's still an offer letter somewhere in the office, but I haven't found it. But they... Um, yeah, so they, anyway, they went a different direction. They hired a melanoma surgeon and I got this job at UMass. So things happen for a reason. Hmm. And so that's been my career now. Now I, I'm still operating as a pancreas surgeon, but obviously I operate less than I love to and would like to because I found out that if I operate too much or God forbid have complications that require reoperations, I can't do my, I can't do what I want to do for the patient and do what I need to do for the department and for the hospital and the medical school. So it's a, it's a trade-off when you get old enough that they people kick you upstairs, but it's, it's still a lot of fun. And the most fun thing is to, to work with the residents and to actually m mentor faculty members along this way. My, my chief of surgical oncology is Tevia Sachs. He was a chief resident when I came to BIDMC. He and I did my first Whipple there together. And now he's my division chief of surgical oncology. So it's, it's quite exciting. Wow. Yeah, I've noticed I've, in following PubMed and in research that Dr. Sachs and yourself have published a lot of papers together in the last few years that are, are very good. And uh, on HPV. So that's awesome that he was part of your first Whipple and now uh, works alongside you running a department. Thank you very much for that introduction. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the practice of HPV, primarily what, what you do, but also um, how HPV is practiced at Boston Medical Center and, and maybe compare contrast to some of the other places that you've worked and, and how, that's, how that's maybe different or maybe similar? To say that we are we're super privileged now i have remember i've had three jobs i've loved everywhere i've worked and have had great partners and probably more importantly great residents everywhere um, but I, I will say that where i work now it, we are so collaborative so we routinely get 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 our friends to come help us with our cases the residents are this way too if i'm doing a whipple two chief residents will show up and they'll they'll try to buy to, to do teach us as cases as, as much as they are able which is amazing so we do the same thing as faculty. I wander through the OR and, and I'll, I'll scrub. If somebody, if somebody someone's doing a breast case and I, I see that they don't quite have quite enough assistance for them to get, you know, get, their, get their flap quite right, if I have time, I'll scrub. Dr. McEnany, Dr. Sachs, my two partners that do HPV, we all help each other out all the time, whether it's resuscitating each other's patients or taking them back to the operating room. And that is a, a cultural difference for me. It's not a sea change because I've had very collaborative partners everywhere I've been at, but it's 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 very very pronounced here. So we really are a team sport. We we our multi-day conference is amazing. It's run by Dr. Sachs, but we 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 go through all the patients that we present, and we we 
decide on care together. It's not the surgeon running the show, even though he's the moderator. We really ask our medical oncologist, is this someone that would benefit from neoadjuvant therapy? Often our, our answer, our, our general answer is yes. We tend to try to put all of our patients through neoadjuvant. We're a little privileged in that our patients really want to stay with us. We very rarely lose patients to people across town. That was a little bit different. Other places I've been is that our patient population really trusts us. Our patient population loves Boston Medical Center and they generally love their providers. I'm not saying it's 100%, but that is, that is it's, it's, a, it's nice to have the community's trust and, and their doctors are here and that they trust the system. And if we say it to them, and, and these are your options, and that they often will say to us, well, well doctors, well, what do you recommend? What would you do? And in all honesty, if I had pancreatic adenocarcinoma right now, I would want new adjuvant therapy. I absolutely would. I wouldn't want a Whipple for nothing. I'd want to have new adjuvant therapy first, try to take care of, as I say to my patients, those little soldiers outside in the lymph nodes and elsewhere first, and then and then then do the big whack that has a lot of chances for complications and, and whatnot, even in the very best of hands. That's great. Yeah, thank you. You know, on the topic of uh, pancreatic adenocarcinoma, first of all, we encourage people to watch the talks from the HPBA if you weren't at the meeting, but a lot of, the, of our audience is residents and fellows and kind of people that are a little more junior. Can you talk a little bit, just sort of your typical plan for a new patient with pancreatic adenocarcinoma who comes to you that you're going to do neoadjuvant, how you like to do it? Do you push for fulfirinox or do you think that with the new SWOG study that gemabraxin is just as good or what's your typical kind of push on those patients or is it totally up to medical oncology? No, no, we, we decide these things together, but, but yeah. in general, we, we are still pushing fulfirinox for people that, that can tolerate fulfirinox. I, I, I am impressed with the SWOG study. We have given gemabraxin. I will say that I work with some community medical oncologists and, uh, around, and many of them are more comfortable giving gemabraxin to, especially more elderly patients, et cetera. And I certainly don't contradict them. I tell them what has been said in our, our medical oncologists in our HPV conference. And, and, and they, I, I respect them. They know their patients, they know their community, and they're, they're doing things based on data. So I think the data is fine if you choose to do gemabraxin, but to us, aquafarinox is still standard of care. Yeah. And then are you, um, how often are you restaging? How much therapy are you trying to get before you go to the operating room? And is that based on, you know, tumor marker changes in imaging? How are you making those decisions as you're kind of following along through neoadjuvant? In general, we're, well, borderline is different, but in general for resectable pancreas cancer patients, and I have several that are in various parts of the queue, uh, we, we will generally have the medical oncologist give to two full months of, of, of chemotherapy. And then we will schedule imaging while not stopping chemo. But, but at that point, then we schedule imaging. Then the patient comes to see me or, or one of my partners and we re-review in, in tumor board and multidisciplinary conference. Then we make the decision after the third month to take a month off and then do operation or whether to continue with systemic therapy or to switch based on what we see. But since these are generally resectable patients, I, it, it, I, I, even if there's no change in, in imaging, I would still be operating on them because they would, they're receptible up front. I, yeah. I, I would be alarmed if say they're CA1991 to the roof or something, but I'm not necessarily looking for a change, although there usually is a drop in CA1991 for anyone that's not a non-secreted. And how about um, for resectable pancreas cancer, how about um, chemoradiation at all? Or do you reserve that for borderline or um, locally advanced patients? 
do we generally have been reserve, reserving the radiation for 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 post-operative adjuvant if we if we want that? We I I've had a good experience at BIDMC for for cyberknife for serotactic radiosurgery, so we we did use that often even for positive margins. Um, so so I have moved away from 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 routine external beam radiation therapy preoperatively. Uh, but but I, again, some of my referring doctors on South Coast, if we do things in a multidisciplinary conference, they may decide to radiate. We, we had a lot of differences during COVID, to be honest with you. Right. We were keep, keep, keeping people out of the hospital, especially before vaccines. And we were we were doing things that were a little different. We I did a, a bunch of external beam radiation at that point because we we thought that that was better than putting them in the inpatient. And we were in some ways we were not even doing elective non-urgent operations for a period of time in 2020. Right. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Did you find differences in the operating room when you were kind of doing things out of the norm? Did you feel like the operations were different for those patients? Not really. Of course, you can tell the difference. I had a patient yeah. who had a metal stent in for more than a year because of COVID. And then when I operated her, it was a very sticky port yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, but But she did fine. I just saw her in clinic last week. She did fine. I will say that early on, this has nothing to do with COVID, but early on at UMass, I, there was a 47-year-old man who came in with pancreas cancer that I operated on and then had tumor around the proper hepatic artery fairly extensively. And I ended up, because this was early on, I did a double bypass on him um, and sent him to get chemo and radiation. And he got nine months he got chemo and then he got radiation. The whole thing was nine months and he got 75 gray of radiation total. And then he had a response. So I took it. So I actually took him to the operating room. The operation took me 17 hours. Oh, he, yeah. um, but, and it, it wasn't only because I was fairly junior. It was, it was like <laughs> cement in there. Yeah. But he did great. He lived for seven years, but he did recover. Yeah. But but yeah. he lived for seven years. That's like the dose radiation therapy that's in the recent publications from Memorial. I think. It is. When I read that paper, I was like, I, I operated on that guy. But we we just wow. didn't. Th this was a very aggressive radiation oncologist. He did not consult with me about the about what he gave him because we I thought he was done. He he yeah. he, he sent him back to me. And, and so what do we do now? And, and I, was, I was probably too young to really appreciate exactly how much radiation he had gotten and why that was bad. Wow. That's a, hopefully you had a partner around for that case. <laughs> Giles Whalen probably stuck his head in his, but, but he, he didn't scrub in that case. It was just me and my poor chief resident there slogging away. That's a long day. Uh, yeah. it, just, just to kind of round, round out that conversation on radiation, are you using it more with borderline resectable? Are you using it when you have a close margin on a vessel or kind of what's your criteria for pre-op radiation where you are typically using it? In general for borderline, and this is maybe a, a little bit, this predates our, our new stuff on resectable. For borderline, we generally have, I generally have been radiating. I, I've been favoring external beam, especially if it hasn't magically melted away. I've been favoring radiation. Many of my radiation colleagues now are they they tend to want us to take it out and then they they can go in and irradiate later. And are you guys doing traditional fifty point four over twenty five, or are you guys doing any yes. SBRT? And have you? We are. We we do SBRT, but in general, if we think we're going to resect the patient, yeah. then they would they want to save the SBRT for recurrence, et cetera, later. So, gotcha. so I, I, I'm simple. I kind of think of SBRT as like instead of surgery or cleaning up the margins of surgery. I, 
you know, rather than I'm going to do SBRT and then I'm going to go and take out what you just SBRT'd. So then I guess we can finish up with, with this topic by moving on to locally advanced pancreas cancer and talk about the great debate that yourself and Dr. Katz led. Who do you think won that debate <laughs> between Dr. Del Chiaro and Dr. Ferroni in terms of the data presented and whether radiation really has a role in improving outcomes for these patients? Well, I, I think it's hard to say. Two Italians, but both strong, well, one's Italian-American, but strong-minded. I, I think Dr. Ferroni relied a little bit more on the data, to be honest with you. So that, that's where my vote would go. But, but I, it, it, it's, there, is, there is room either way with all of these debates to, to be able to make, make a reasonable case, which is why either direction, which is why we have, we have the debates. I thought it was a very good debate. Thought it was a very interesting debate as well. Um, so uh, there was one study that Dr. Delciar brought up that I thought was very interesting, where he showed some data that radiation may increase the rate of distant metastases, at least in a preclinical model. And I was like, I had not seen that. So there was there was some really interesting data presented for sure. But the usual question of systemic disease versus a local problem, and what kind of help local therapies can give us. Yeah, well, the, the converse too is that when you go to when you go to the ice cream store, you're going to get ice cream, or when you're a hammer, you're at the whole world looks like a nail. The MGH invested long ago on, on this extremely expensive, beautiful IORT suite, and so for that reason, even though some of these studies don't involve IORT, they have strongly been on the bandwagon of of radiation as an important modality. The fact that Chris Willett was you know, he basically was a member of the Department of Surgery. I think he did a surgical internship. He's one of the most famous pancreatic radiation oncologists in the world. But he was very, very tied in to how the, the general first started thinking about pancreas cancer. And especially when we start thinking about neoadjuvant thinking pancreas cancer, radiation is really much more at the table there than, 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 than many other traditional surgical departments. That was also the case, I will be honest with you, at, at MD Anderson Cancer Center. Uh, Chris Crane, who's now at Memorial, but is, is, was at MD Anderson when I was a fellow there, and he really was, like Bob Wolf was the medical oncologist, he was a member of the table. He, he, the, the, he, those three guys, Doug Evans, Doug Evans, Bob Wolf, and Chris Crane, they were my three horsemen or, or something when I was a fellow. They, they, all three of them had a huge impact on, on, on my career and how I think about multidisciplinary care. So you want everybody at the table, what order you go in, or even if you go at all, it's not necessarily the, the right um, the question, the question is, are, are there voices being heard? And are we thinking about all the modalities that could benefit our patients? And that's going to change as the, as the techniques change and as the um, components that we have of care change. But I think we need all these people on the table. Now we need to add other people. Now we need to add palliative care. Now we need to, you know, we need symptom management. Potentially we need anesthesia, regional anesthesia, obviously GI. We need, we need all of these people at the table. And you had mentioned briefly, potentially switching therapy. Can you talk a little bit about when you might switch in the neoadjuvant window and kind of what your criteria are for that? I think that's an interesting, now that we have a little bit more, you know, um, what we think are maybe equivalents between Gemabraxane and Fulfirinox, are you more likely to switch or have you seen more of that in your practice? When things aren't working, either in terms of disease progression or in terms of to patient tolerance of therapy. I think that's a message to us that we need to think, what else can we do? Just again, I made an, an allusion to banging your head against the wall. That's one thing when it's research, but if it, your patient really is not tolerating the therapy or it really doesn't seem like it's 
efficacious for them, that, that is the time to think about changing it up. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing that I've seen a couple times now is where somebody gets a couple months, three months pre-op, and they don't have much tumor regression. And then they're going to get adjuvant therapy. And what do you do in that situation? Are you switching or do you think that we'll get there eventually? Or, or how are you handling that? If you gave three months full Fernox, didn't have much response, but you took the tumor out uh, and now they need three more months of therapy, potentially, uh, what are you doing in that situation? Well, we, we definitely discuss this at multidisciplinary conference. If there was very little tumor response, we often will switch. Yeah, I think it's interesting. There's no real data there to guide us, but I think it's a really interesting spot that some of us get into. Yeah, for sure. I think we could take this opportunity to maybe change gears here and talk a little bit about um, some of your recent publications along with Dr. Sachs on access to care and disparities research. I've heard you talk many times about Boston Medical Center and some, some part of its role as a safety net hospital for uh, people of the region. And I wanted, to, I wanted to hear your thoughts on HPB care in that setting compared to, for example, maybe where you trained and where I practice now at MD Anderson. And then also talk a little bit about some recent publications I've seen from your group that I thought were very interesting talking about volume. And a lot of the volume outcome relationship data has all been high volume, low volume, this first this, this. There's actually a huge gray area which I think you guys have addressed very nicely across a couple of different diseases about kind of the middle of the volume pack and, and what type of outcomes can be achieved in those settings. Yeah, so what is this holy grail of the volume outcome effect? And that you've gotten you know, from the Birkmeyer on down right. that, that especially in the early days of outcomes research, you have large databases, you have small databases, and then you can sort of say, okay, well, look, my last 1,000 ripples, et cetera, like my death rate is 2%, but in the national literature, it is you know, 5% or 6%. So therefore, if you send all of those patients to me at hospital X, um, in my hands, because I'm such a great surgeon and my hospital is so great, um, that if I just did all the ripples in the United States, the death rate would go from 5% and, and to 2%, and then we would save millions of lives or well, 30,000 lives or whatever. Um, so th that's that's the, the logical absurdity of the volume outcome argument. And then you forget the, so Dr. Y, are you gonna pay for all of those people from all over the country to go operate with you in your hands at your institution? Um, and how's that gonna work exactly? And Who's going to drive them and who's going to pay and where's your family going to stay and could your hospital or you even handle all of the whipples in the United States going to you in your hands at, at your institution? So I'm, I'm being I'm making I'm joking of course but but this is the reality of the question. So our group has thought has hypothesized that there is clearly more nuance to that. We're surgeons, right? We're not stupid. There's more nuance to the volume outcome effect than just sheer numbers. I mean, you can get to the point of even saying, okay, well, in the Medicare database, uh, the, the cutoff number is like 14.7 to be high volume. But then you have these absurdities like, okay, so the, the Medicare database is pretty much only people that are 65 and up. So you're saying that of people that are 65 and up that are actually reflected in Medicare, that actually, you know, whatever, that you didn't forget to bill for the patient in Medicare, that's the number, the 14.7 number, it's that exact. So they're all proxies. So what our group has done, and I credit Susanna De Hus, who is an amazing MD PhD from the Netherlands who's applying surgery residency now, 
but but that the, there is there is and and my previous research fellows including Lindsay Bliss and and others Mary Mescadar and our Casanova and others and of course Dr. Sachs there's more nuance to this volume of conflict yes being an ex experienced center with experienced surgeons with multidisciplinary care and good IR and good GI makes sense you want to be in a center where they know what they're doing but it's a little bit more nuanced than just the exact number as reflected in whatever the Medicare database or the leapfrog numbers or cutoffs. There's more nuance to it. And there's, especially for a patient-centered approach. So what the most recent work that Susanna and Dr. Sachs and we have all done is to show that actually, if you do a lot of high index operations and, and their pancreas adjacent operations or the liver adjacent operations, you can have outcomes that are as good as those that are that are at quote unquote just the high volume surgeons. I only operate on the right pancreas, at my etc. With my right hand, so I think it's important. We, we need to let patients choose their centers and choose their doctors wisely, and we have to also be realistic as to what we can actually what actually makes sense in in this country for patients to get overall excellent care. So we're we're very lucky at at, at BMC because we are we have obviously highly experienced surgeons that are, have, a, have a lot of experience at this institution and others. We have a hospital that has invested in the best equipment and, and the best resources and the best chemotherapy and the best robot, if, you, if, if that, and laparoscopy. And we also have a state and, a, and sort of a state insurance system that thinks that patients should, get, should not get inferior care because they're coming to a safety in the hospital. So we I think, feel like we have the best of all possible worlds. And so we, don't, we can take care of patients without, without ability to pay. Nobody tells me I need to recruit. Uh, I can't operate on Medicaid patients or even undocumented patients without insurance. If they need an operation, I can do that operation. And they can get just the same quality incentive spirometer as they would get somewhere else. And I don't have to fill out a triplicate form to get the incentive spirometer or the nicest port or, or anything else. So I don't mean to sound like an evangelist particularly, but it's, it's nice being in a place where we just don't have to worry about it. I'm glad you brought up the pancreas adjacent operation paper. I really, really like that paper um, because really a lot of what we talk about as surgical oncologists is applying what we do in terms of surgery, but trying to minimize complications that can delay or hurt a patient's ability to get back onto various types of oncologic therapy, right? So if you're operating in that area and you are able to do high index operations, as you said, then clearly that you're gonna minimize that opportunity to get onto what is multidisciplinary care. And I'm originally from Canada and lived in Toronto and then moved to rural Pennsylvania, but I have a lot of family and in Canada, there's only certain places where you're allowed to do these things in Canada, it's very centralized care. I have a lot of family who live up in very rural Ontario in the lake country who would literally rather just watch the sun come up and go down on the lake up there rather than drive to Toronto for this type of care. So I've always really liked the idea of trying to find ways to have people to get care from where they are from. And that paper was, was fantastic. So thanks for bringing that up. But Tim, Tim has a, a different setting practicing at the, in a military hospital is very interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. I think it's, I, I think your work is, is great for, you know, I do more general surgical oncology, but try to stick to upper GI. So I do gastrectomies, liver, pancreas. And I do think that, you know, particularly as I'm transitioning to more and more robotics, like every time I do a gastrectomy, I get better at doing a distal pank. Every time I do a distal pank, I get better at doing a Whipple, you know? And I think, like you said, if you're focused only on the right pancreas and nothing else, I think you miss a lot of the, the nuance there. So 
Uh, I think that that work is great. For those of us who aren't at the biggest medical centers, I think obviously we're probably all biased towards liking that work, but um, it's it's eye-opening stuff, which is good. I was just going to say, we have, I have this tradition in my department. I always have, try to have one member of my surgical faculty serving overseas in the armed forces at any one time. Right now, it's Thurston Drake, who is in Bahrain right now. He's an, a member of the Division of Surgical Oncology and an endocrine surgeon. Neil Edwards just got back from the Navy um, where, where he was in Afghanistan. And I actually have a flag in my office he brought back that he had flown over the base in Afghanistan yeah, on, yeah. on July 4th, July 4th, cool. 2020. So, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's great. It's, and we actually are excited because we, we have a pretty strong partnership. Also, Jonathan Woodson is a VASPA surgeon with us, and he was the um, Undersecretary for Health and Human Services under, under the Obama administration. So we have pretty strong ties to the military in our department. And I actually think that leads to our, some of our collegiality, our, our, our willing to help each other out. We're actually getting what's going to be, what we're excited. We're expanding our residency. So we're getting a sixth chief and we're getting an Air Force resident in this year's match. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I was involved in the match process this year. So I was on a bunch of phone calls Perfect. with the program directors. Fantastic. Awesome. There's one thing I wanted to just mention really quickly. And that is, I would love to hear your comments on social media and surgery in general. You have mastered it. <laughs> Great follow on Twitter. Um, and uh, the reason why I say that is because I think one of your, uh, within a couple of years of your training program, one of my mentors, Dr. Aloya, um, he told yeah. me, he told We're me, fellows together. Yeah, exactly. Dr. Aloya told me when I, when I, when I came here as a fellow that I had to get Twitter and he told me that Twitter was in his opinion, the most important social media, but beyond that, maybe the best advertising and um, plat platform just for getting your message out for surgeons. Do you think that that's true? You know, I, I'm only on Twitter because of this department. So I, I will say I'm a dinosaur. My kids make fun of me because I don't know how to turn on the TV without them. That being said, Niraj Ghassani, who's an HPBA yeah. member, maybe a decade ago said, you need to sign up for this Twitter thing. Oh, no, it wasn't even Niraj. It was, I know who it was. It was, it was a medical oncologist that I did Ask a GI with, who's great, Mike Thompson. He signed me up with everybody else in our leadership development program for Twitter. I immediately forgot the password and then I, I never looked at it again. And then Niraj Kusani convinced me that I need to do something. And we, we somehow reset my password and then I forgot again. But, <laughs> but when, I got, when I got this job, when I got the, if you look on, if you actually look, my first tweet was like December, 2016. So, so right before when I was interviewing for this job. So that was my very first tweet. So it was a very, even though I had an account, I didn't do anything with it until then. So just literally, I was sending us to Mary Hahn. She was there. We were at some SSAT uh, winter course together. But that being said, when I got this job, when, 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 I, when, when, I, when the announcement came down that I was going to get this job, I was actually in the airport flying to HPBA with my family because I was bringing them with me. So it came somewhere, the announcement was somewhere in whatever it was, March, 2017. So somehow they made, the, the, somebody leaked the announcement on social media before the official announcement and who shall go nameless. And then Adil Hader tweeted it. And, and in the time that I was on the plane, I, I guess it, at the meeting, there was a whole discussion about it because Tara Kent, who was my partner at the time, 
And who knew about this? But what was like at the meeting, people were like, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? And so Otto Hader with his tweet had somehow created this storm of the Game of Thrones or however they perceived it in Boston. And it happened to be at my home meeting, the HPBA. And I arrived at this meeting with my husband and my two kids in tow. And all of a sudden, everyone at the meeting was like, oh, you heard the news. And it hadn't even really been officially announced yet. But, and I was actually completely irritated by the whole thing and, and vowed to get off social media completely. And then, and I was mad at Adil and I was mad at my the, at the person who actually put it on Facebook. But then afterwards, the commentary, I, I wasn't, and the commentary was sort of amazing because there's all these people that I didn't know that were posting things, like say on Facebook, um, which is his own thing. All these actually, I think mostly female surgical residents that I didn't know at all made comments. Like, well, this is like, you know, inspirational, et cetera, et cetera. On Twitter, people were saying things. I, I still don't really know how to work Twitter, but people were saying things and that actually moved me to some extent. Even though I started out with complete irritation by the, by the it, it actually showed me that young people in particular were getting their information this way. And that even that we old people couldn't control the message by announcing it in the usual forms because they're, you know, there were embargoes and this and that and it's the whole timing. And, and so it made me realize that to lead a department of surgery, especially one that I wanted to gain in prominence and um, for people to see that it's possible to be a human being and be a surgeon and be, be diverse and be a surgeon, that it was a way to reach people in a way to just show people that our department has great residents and great attendings and great surgery that we care about the patients that we take care of and, and to be an authentic representation in a curated way of, of the, the life somebody can have as an HPV surgeon, as a surgeon, as a doctor, as a person, as a human. Um, and I think especially for our young people, but even for us older people and people older than us, it is a way to, it, when used, used with some caution to engage authentically. So those are my thoughts on the mixed bag of social media. Well, it's very authentic, and it, I, I do enjoy following. If any of our listeners haven't followed Dr. Zhang, you should do it. It's a great follow, for sure. <laughs> it's fun. On along the lines of social media or even just regular interactions, I, th I think all of what you see is, is, to some extent, curated, even though the people that you meet in person. So I just want people to know that our trainees and students or whomever, young attendings, no one else really has it figured out that, that it, it's actually okay to feel like you're just surviving or that you had a failure. And um, that, that because people look at people like us and think, oh, well, they have it all figured out. And um, how'd they get there? And it was clearly plotted and the pathway was serene or, they're, they're just amazing or they're a super person or they're somehow you know, different or, and, that, and to feel inferior. I, I think if you don't have some insecurity or some worry, I think then I just think you're a, you're a monster, honestly, <laughs> but, but most of us deal with it in different ways. But I, I, I would encourage people to realize that there is no one best way to do stuff, that everybody has complications, that everyone makes mistakes. And there's some quote, um, but about, about failing harder, failing better, try again, fail more. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's I think Beckett, but uh, Samuel Beckett, but it is, it is 
something to keep in mind, especially in this field of HPB surgery, where the stakes are high, um, complications always stay with us. Try to be kind to each other and kind to yourself in this field. It's a long journey. Well, that's, that is a fantastic well to finish. Yeah. yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate um, your insight during this interview and hope to have you back. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure.